Hello and welcome to Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tape Heads is the podcast where we select either a VHS tape from Lindsay's collection or a VHS tape from my own. We watch it and then we talk about it. Lindsay, we dipped into your video cassette collection for this episode. What is it that you picked out for us? Little Nemo Adventures in Slumberland. I don't think anyone's seen this movie outside of myself, and maybe, I don't know. I actually personally don't know anyone other than myself that grew up with this movie. Yeah, when I was telling people that this is the movie that we were doing for the next episode, they are like, oh, is that related to Finding Nemo? And it's like, no, no, it's its, its own thing. Yeah. It's a Japanese and American co-production Mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. had a very troubled production history. Yet a lot of very famous people involved with it, including Ray Bradbury, Mickey Rooney. Brad Bird from Pixar. Mm-hmm. So they had a ton of really great talent, but uh, it did not do well commercially. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a strange movie in that it's based on this American comic strip that debuted in 1905 in the New York Herald. Uh, Windsor McKay was the artist. It's funny because I actually learned about Windsor McKay. I, for, I, I didn't know that the, uh, the connection between him and this movie, that it was based on his original material. I had learned about him in an animation class I took in high school. He's really famous for doing one of the first a- hand-drawn animated shorts. Gertie the Dinosaur. Yeah. It's interesting just how many people were involved in this project for so long. Yutaka Fujioka, is that how you pronounce that? Oh, yeah. He first had the idea, this is like his dream project, to take this comic strip, Little Nemo, and turn it into an animated feature. And he first had the idea in the late 70s. And he worked for, I guess, over 10 years to finally see it through. And the results are a little strange. A little mixed. You can tell that there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. There's a lot of people with different ideas over what or how to really tackle this source material. From the gist I could see from the credits and from what I was looking up, it was almost entirely Japanese animators, but there were um, some, I think some of the in-betweeners and there were certain uh, positions that were done by Americans, yeah. But the, the large part of the animation was Japanese. And the sense that I get just from our research on this was that there wasn't a lot of communication between <laughs> the Japanese animators and the, I guess, American creative side. And Brad Bird was quoted as saying that at one point he asked, I guess, the Japanese animators what they were illustrating. He had no idea what they were illustrating, and their answer was, oh, they just are illustrating what Ray Bradbury was writing. And later, Brad Bird asked Ray Bradbury about it, and Ray Bradbury said exactly the opposite. He was just writing whatever they would send him illustrations of. So it's kind of unclear who was really at the helm in all this and how much control Fujioka really had. It's also kind of weird because they give, as in top billing, they put Christopher Columbus first. There are two names, and his comes first. For the writer's credit. For the writer's credit. Yet, from what we saw when we were looking into it, it seems like he was kind of be he was taking the part of a script doctor trying to save the project. And unfortunately, it did flop pretty hard, at least the at the American box office when it came out a few years later after. I guess it came out in 92. 
a few years after the Japanese release. Yeah, the Japanese release, I think, seven years after they started production. The American release was about ten years, which is insane. That's a huge amount of time. But for the Japanese release, it actually didn't do that well in Japan either because it was competing with uh, Miyazaki had just released Kiki's Delivery Service, which was huge in Japan. And wasn't it Miyazaki who said that he was completely disillusioned with working with American studios after his experience on this project? Yeah, he actually worked on this movie. I'm not sure what role. What role it was seems it? like every I mean every person that was known at the time, like this is the, the peak of Chris Columbus's yeah. popularity. I feel like everyone known in both Japanese and American animation or family films was at, at some point called in to, yeah. to fix this unwieldy I guess 35 million dollar animated movie which at the time was a huge amount of money yeah and so Miyazaki was pulled in to do some work for them and ultimately pulled out and said it was one of the worst professional experiences of his life it's pretty sad to read his comments. I guess we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. What is this movie about, and what and why did you select it for the podcast, Lindsay? This movie is about a young boy who enters into... It's not entirely clear. It seems like he enters into a dream state, and so we see him travel to a place called Slumberland. He does something he's not supposed to do, unleashes evil, evil nightmares, Almost gets some people killed and ends up having to sacrifice himself to save them. But luckily, he's brought back to life and seems to live happily ever after. Undeservedly so, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) This kid is kind of a little shithead. The whole time he's being built up as the heir to the king of Slumberland... And everyone's always building him up, and there's a big coronation celebration in his honor. But all the way, he's just so passive, and is just always saying yes to everything. Roger Ebert's review of this movie, he says of Nemo, the lead character, Nemo himself has the IQ of an eggplant, but at least (laughs) he doesn't talk much. (laughs) He's kind of like the every boy character that you're supposed to be able to just step into the shoes of. I think it's kind of like Bella Swan with Twilight. I'll tell you something. If I was in his shoes and Morpheus, the king of Slumberland, gave me a key and said I could use it on any door, but not the nightmare door, I don't think the first thing I would have done is handed over to notorious trickster Mickey Rooney. Whose character is Flip, which it's kind of weird because Slumberland is occupied like all the residents are clowns it seems like. And then the king and his daughter aren't. And there's a lot of crazy creatures just kind of walking around, but most of the good guys are human. Yeah. Like, Flip is this strange clown who rides around on a huge crow. And there, there's definitely some strange otherworldly sort of people. You have Professor Genius, who's this kind of lanky, strange guy. Mm-hmm. But, that helps offer some guidance. And you have these goblins that can morph together to become... They're four four or five separate entities that kind of gloop together. It's really odd because they become this like weird blob of goblins all with a bunch of heads. I think the main thing that I think of when watching this movie is something like Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. Where it's entirely this character's dream. I'll I'll go on the record as saying I'm not a huge fan of Alice in Wonderland or any adaptation of it. 
I think some of the the visuals are really cool and some of the characters are cool, but I think I have the same essential problem in that it's all just someone's dream and at the end they haven't really grown or learned anything from this experience. Yeah, this film's a little weird because he goes through this horrifying experience where he has to save the king and then some other friends that he's made along the way. He has to save their lives because of something he did wrong. The little boy sacrifices his own life. Like he knows they cut the scene out of the... The American version was cut down considerably rendering it kind of incomprehensible. Yeah, but there was a scene they cut where they established that Nemo will die (laughs) if he uses this magic scepter the king gave him. So this kid actually sacrifices his own life but then when his dream ends he's just really excited to go to the circus like yeah that's, that's it. so weird to me <laughs> that the last line of the movie is something along the lines of now let's go to the circus and it's like what are you talking about and i know that it, i guess we're just supposed to believe that this really is just a dream that mm-hmm. there is that it's not like the Wizard of Oz books you were saying, mm-hmm. where it's it's proven to be a real place. Yeah. And also, can we talk about how ironic it is that the American version of this cut out the Christ metaphor entirely? <laughs> I know, And the right? Japanese version was entirely <laughs> about that? So we're talking about cuts. The American version was cut up because they thought the movie was too scary and they wanted to make sure it got a, P- a G rating instead of a PG rating. I found it terrifying because the images are really scary and so it was something that just stayed with me. I had this kind of deep resentment of the movie for, for scaring me as a child. Little Nemo is in constant danger. I mean, locomotives chase after him. He's visited by all these horrific monsters. I mean, not just the Nightmare King, but all these freaky goblins. And his best friend's a squirrel, who's kind of the, <laughs> the squirrel Icarus, who wears a little pair of goggles. He's kind of the... He's the, a flying squirrel. A flying squirrel, excuse me. Who? I, I mean, I guess he's not like a, a disturbing part of the film, but it is interesting that he's kind of the brains of the operation the squirrel. Uh, I think the thing that's kind of just what was disturbing to me as a child when I watched it is that the movie's a little unsettling because everything is dreamlike and it's that sort of weird dream reality where nothing is quite real and everything is a little different and you kind of have the sense of wait this is familiar but it's not quite what I thought. They even have rooms where you're walking upside down but there's this constant threat of falling. They actually have falling throughout the movie. That's something that just happens constantly. There are couple of scenes where there's the threat of drowning. Things that most people naturally have nightmares about. So it's kind of interesting that they blend all of these things in there, but for kids. Yeah, I also think of Nightmare on Elm Street, which we'll eventually get to on this podcast. But one thing that I thought they were going to kind of address in, in this dream movie that was addressed in Nightmare on Elm Street is this idea of pulling things out of your dreams. Mm-hmm. And that is done. Like Nemo is able to take you know, the scepter, and it, it wakes up with it uh, in his bed. But then that ends up being part of the dream. So even yeah. that is kind of throwaway. It's so interesting that they decided to go that route, that it's just entirely in his head, mm-hmm. and there's no real ambiguity about that. It's weird, too, because they kind of lead you on in the movie where they have this back and forth because he'll reappear in his bed at home, and there will be something, an object from the dreamland. But then... When the, when the film ends, it's just done, and there's no kind of lasting um, object or anything else. It's just over. 
Oh, quick side note. There was a single ad before this movie started. Oh, we forgot the ad. It was for Tropicana Juice. <laughs> it was that ad where the straw chases around the orange trying to puncture it. And the orange flees for its life in vain. And the straw finally punctures it delivering the tasty tasty blood of the orange which is Tropicana. It's also like one why was the only ad a Tropicana ad that you would have seen on TV constantly at the time? I, there Could must they have not been... have gotten anything else? They were just like no one's gonna watch this movie let's do a throwaway ad. It's funny because when we put in the tape you knew in advance that it was a big box office flop and my theory was that they would load it up with ads because it's kind of <laughs> like why not? If someone accidentally buys this tape then they're gonna see all of of our ads but you were right the apparently Tropicana was the only company willing to spring for that that sweet ad space it's it's a shame because the 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 art the animation in this film is really beautiful and some of the designs that they do the way that they express nightmare land the um our big bad boss and how he moves absolutely beautiful and really skillfully done but the movie itself just does not blend and I think it's that because it's this bicultural movie, but there wasn't a meshing of cultures. It's just this kind of inconstant conflict. Because it, it, you can kind of see the Japanese touches in this kind of um, attempt to do it in a Western style. Somehow the, the imagery and then the voices and the story itself, none of it quite comes together naturally. I would agree with that. This is something that made a huge impression on me, and I haven't seen it since I was little, and so it was really odd to revisit it. Sean, do you have a movie that had a similar impression on you when you were a kid? Something that either just is very vivid in your memory or something that kind of really terrified you? Well, there are definitely movies that captured my imagination. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas was a big one of those. But I mentioned it on the last episode, the It Takes Two episode. The movie that I really remember being so scary that I had to turn it off was The Gate, which is, I think that with that film, I barely remember anything about it, but it was one of the few films that was so scary to me as a kid that mm -hmm. I had to turn it off. That never happened with me. Pretty tough kid. Pretty cool kid. <laughs> but um, I think it had to do with the fact that it was about boys my age digging a hole in their backyard and finding hell and it was one of those movies where it's like you just want the sun to come up you just want this <laughs> night to be over yeah and there are all these like i just have a vivid memory of like their parents are away it's night all these demons are coming out of the backyard and just like you're just sinking in your chair going oh can't the parents come home can't it be daytime and then the car pulls up and <laughs> mom and dad seem to be there and it seems to be all right but they're actually images that the demons have created oh, God. and they're like these and it's like a pg-13 movie it's like not an r-rated horror film but it was still like really upsetting this this particular sequence just never seemed to end. And I'm sure when we inevitably have it on the podcast, it'll just be, you'll just be laughing at me. Like, how could I have been scared by this? But I remember that just was like the most grueling marathon of horror. And this is a kid who loved horror movies at that age. That's um, so funny. But uh, yeah, I remember that one we sent back to Oasis Video without me finishing it. I don't know why. This is another movie where I didn't watch it just once, even though it scared me. I kept revisiting it because there was something enchanting about it. I think it's that dreamlike quality. Yeah, you know, there's sequences like the Upside Down Room 
that I think really have that magical dream quality where it really feels like a dream. But then there's other sequences that I I just am so baffled by. The whole coronation ceremony. Okay, and... so he's saying coronation ceremony. The reason that Nemo is in Slumberland was that he was invited by the king to become his heir. Just out of the blue, seemingly. Out of the, out of the blue. They had no blood relation as far as we knew. He met a guy... This is the thing that's kind of weird where you're questioning, is this reality, is this not? There was a parade in real life before Nemo went to sleep where they were celebrating that the circus was going to come. And so Nemo attended the parade and there was a man that looked like the king and there was a girl that looked like the princess and, they, and he had kind of this connection with the king... And so that night he dreamed that he went to Slumberland and was invited to be the heir, which is just irresponsible. Um, Another thing that we haven't mentioned about this movie is that it's kind of a musical. There's a few musical numbers sprinkled throughout. And it's only partly a musical because they know Disney established that kids animated movies are musicals so they just threw them in it doesn't even really work yeah because this is around the time of like beauty and the beast and the great sort of revival of the of the disney features i feel like and yeah it really did not need any of the musical sequences at all they're pretty bad songs like it opens (laughs) up with like what kind of dream will you dream, little Nemo? And just, like, very on-the-nose things, like, just kind of telling us what this movie is going to be about. While he's learning how to become the prince, uh, he, he goes through this entire music and dance with everyone where he's completely inept at everything. It's kind of a My Fair Lady type thing where he's, like, basically going through etiquette training but they give him no time to, to learn any of these things they they push him into like dance classes for five seconds and they th- start throwing books at him you know literally, like, throwing, books literally throwing books at him and it, like trying to teach him how to you know not eat like a, a savage you know and just like <laughs> it's this whole finishing school sequence and it's unclear why you would need any of these skills in slumberland it's also, I mean, we meet the king when he's just playing with his trains, yeah. which the king looks like Santa. This is the other thing where I was watching this and I was thinking about the design and it, it just is a little odd that we have a Santa king. And <laughs> I have another complaint that links this movie to It Takes Two. The girl playing the princess has the worst fake accent. Oh, yeah. So there is this princess character, Princess Camille, mm-hmm. who's just kind of there to be a foil to Nemo. And you're right, yeah. she does just have the weirdest accent. It's, she's doing the Ashley Olsen. You know, I can really see why this movie would appeal to kids because there's a, like, even as we're talking about it now, I'm remembering more just like the imagery of it. Mm-hmm. More like the story doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. No. But I personally didn't remember the story at all. I remembered this movie just in images. Nemo flying around on his bed is sort of a cool image with mm-hmm. all of his demon friends and his, uh, <laughs> excuse me, goblin friends. His weird mutant goblins that are just merging themselves together in this huge blob and wrapping themselves around the bed. And I think that the villain of the film, this Nightmare King, mm-hmm. is kind of this ethereal black fog that wraps up into this, you yeah. know, sort of master of evil. I think he's a cool 
a concept for a villain, but so much seems to have been cut from the American version. Like, we yeah. were able to find some deleted scenes online. Now, this this film has since been re-released on DVD, and the, apparently the DVD version, um, maybe there's a Blu-ray. I don't know. I, I think that there is there at is this a point. Blu-ray. There is a following to this movie. Yeah, those versions apparently are um, restored. They're not missing the scenes. It would have been interesting to see that version, but... I guess the VHS era never really got yeah. to see that unless they got like a Japanese import of yeah. it. Yeah, uh, I did find an ex- uh, the extended version in HD on YouTube, so we were able to watch some of the missing scenes. But it uh... the issues are still there, but at least the story makes a little more sense. Like yeah. there's this whole issue of a note that Nemo gets from his mother. Yeah, that's left on the fridge, and there's a scene where it's explained, and you kind of see his parents a little more, because we don't really get to know his parents. And this is usual for children's movies and It's like stories. the adults in Peanuts, you know? Yeah. Like you never really see them. They're just kind of there, but um, there's an exchange between him and his mother, and he leaves. she leaves a note for him on the refrigerator, and... You see later in the movie, there's this note, and the note is just kind of out of nowhere. You don't understand why it's there. It's, it seems like it's a message from the king, because it was, um, it was remember your promise, actually. And if you, if you start cutting away pieces like that, then you just have these notes appearing out of nowhere. And I feel like there are a lot of good scenes that were cut where we it, you kind of set up the Nightmare King a little yeah, bit more. Yeah, we, like... we lost an introductory scene with the Nightmare King. And I guess it's sort of scary stuff. Like, he dispatches some of his henchmen the way b- bad guys always do. But, uh, you know, I think it's necessary to understand just who this guy yeah. is. And when you start cutting away, it, it I mean, and to get a G rather than a PG, will yeah. that really make that big of a difference? I think one of the key things that they cut is they cut the detail that tell you, it tells you that Nemo actually dies. Yeah, it's actually the talking squirrel that stumbles upon this piece of information. <laughs> Can we clarify that this talking squirrel, he's almost one of those animals that just makes chirping noises? And you don't really understand his speech, but everyone around him understands, except that they what they did was they had somebody just speak in a really muffled way. And it's it's weird, too, because it'll just be, sometimes he'll be like, Nemo! You can almost buy it that he's learned to say things. But later on in the film, uh, Icarus... actually saying sentences. Later on in the film, and I guess it's part of it's because he's in Slumberland and, you know, all bets are off, but... Later on, this squirrel is just revealing critical exposition for the story. Like, he's going, but you'll die! You know, so this is in the cutscene. Yeah, this is in the cutscene. I mean, somehow the squirrel intuits that if Nemo uses this scepter, then he'll be trading his life yeah. for the worlds, basically. So I think that was one of the key things that they cut to make the movie less scary, was we don't know that Nemo dies. It seems like he dies, but it also could be that he's just unconscious. Yeah, but it seems like the, in the Japanese version, it's pretty definitive that oh, he's, yeah. he's dead and Morpheus uh, brings him back to life. Yeah. So Morpheus is also kind of a god figure. Yeah, absolutely. What is it exactly about this movie that scared you? Is it a certain character or a certain moment in it? There are a few moments. Um, the scene, there's a scene with a train chasing after Nemo that I found really scary. Oh, yeah. Um, because you have that kind of feeling like he's not going to make it, he's not going to make it. One of the, I think, uh, 
One of the images that really kind of stayed with me was of this door that Nemo was told not to open, and it has this black smoke kind of weird it 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 kind of transitions between being smoke and being this kind of fiery lava like black substance um that snakes around and kind of it ultimately engulfs the king to steal him away to nightmare land and there that that idea of this kind of hidden evil behind the door that gets unleashed, thats that was something that really got to me. I feel like later on in the TV show, Lost, the smoke monster might have been <laughs> a, a ripoff from Little Nemo. Another thing that this sort of reminds me of, South Park did this three-episode arc uh, a while back called Imagination Land. It was pretty much this exact story where Nightmare Land was kind of spilling into Imagination Land. And I kind of wonder if Trey Parker and Matt Stone, I know that they're into anime and stuff, but it's fair to guess that they saw this movie and sort of did their own twisted take on it. This is such an odd, quirky movie. I feel like it's something that they would have sought out yeah. at some point. Another connection I sort of have between this and Alice in Wonderland is that there's all these characters that kind of have this sort of cruel edge to them or just uh-huh. not really caring about the welfare of children. Like, yeah. Flip is kind of like Cheshire Cat mm-hmm. or... Um, you know, the Mad Hatter in the sense that they're just completely doing their own thing. And, you know, they they couldn't care less about the hero's journey, really. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of... Flip, I kind of like just because it's Mickey Rooney doing the voice. (laughs) I mean, he's kind of this nefarious character. I mean, he's not quite a villain, but he he definitely is to blame for a lot of the things that go wrong because he he convinces Nemo to open the door to the nightmare world and he kind of just abandons him (laughs) once it opens like he he really seems to just be out there uh causing pranks and causing mayhem with little regard for anyone else and that's so strange to see that in a children's movie is it that strange though because he's the trickster that you see in so many different fables and um I mean, his name tells it all. He just doesn't. He doesn't care. He could get. He could he, give no flips. He's flippant, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what he is. This reminds me, though. Flip was nearly put to death. Yeah, they had him loaded up in a cannon, ready to be executed <laughs> for crimes against Slumberland. Um, which is really kind of dark for a kids' movie, too. I mean, they're not hanging him but where were they where were they shooting him to or is that how they exile people to nightmare land do you think maybe he was meant to survive and just show up in nightmare land and be tortured for the rest of his life just one of many things in this film that's never quite explained (laughs) pretty much everything is not quite explained another story that this film's similar to is the wizard of oz where it kind of has and, and i'm talking not about the book but more about the film the wizard of oz where there's this kind of dreamlike quality to her experience she just goes in and comes out in the wizard of oz you kind of have these these characters that help her down the road that are really driven and they team up and you don't quite have that feeling in this movie there's not this united team this united front you sort of get that out of the goblins but not it's not really the same thing i mean i think the huge difference between wizard of oz and this is that all of those characters gain something i mean both literally like with their heart and their brain but they also just grow as characters whereas this 
you just have this ragtag group of goblins and clowns and maniacs yeah. and then Nemo that's just, you know, a wet blanket. They they're pretty much exactly the same all the way through. It's like, yeah, the this portal to Nightmare Land is opened. But once it's closed, nothing has really changed. And isn't that what <laughs> stories are supposed to be? Uh. A lot of these people in Slumberland are people that Nemo met in real life. Like, there's yeah. a circus that has come to town. And I guess it's the, you know, like the color guard leader or something. <laughs> uh, t- is, is this sort of uh, St. Nick type figure that later takes the form of the king of slumberland so he's pulling people out of his life to be these characters and of Mm -hmm. course icarus is there and that that's also a big part of the last scene of wizard of oz the film is that how it is in the book also the book is a little different because the book um extends into a several book series where you find that the land of oz is quite real Sean, you were pretty uh you were pretty shocked that Icarus slept in Nemo's bed. I just I mean I realize that this is set around the same time as the comic strip, like the the nineteen tens. Nineteen oh five. Nineteen oh five around then. Um, but I feel like even more so at that time, wouldn't the parents be worried about like the the squirrel having rabies or they're I mean and it's not like he's keeping it a secret the mom comes in at one point and she's like ready to go to the the parade and the and Nemo's like yeah but can I bring my squirrel and she says sure why not and the squirrel's it's, like cocked out in the bed snoring. yeah and I mean not to mention just like the dangers posed to the squirrel I mean if you roll yeah. over you're gonna squash poor Icarus I also kind of want to know where all the where Icarus got his little flight goggles. Those are handcrafted <laughs> goggles fit especially for a flying squirrel. I would like to know as well. I think while we were watching the movie, you seem to love Icarus the most. He's the most likable character. <laughs> I mean, even in the climax of the movie, which is pretty much just Nemo pointing this scepter at the Nightmare King trying to recite this uh, this incantation that's literally like ten words. Pajama, 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 pajama. He can't say this. Icarus is holding up a sheet of paper with it written out for him. He's the hero here. Icarus can read, by the yeah, way. Yeah, the squirrel is, is better suited to be the heir to Slumberland than this human boy. Uh, yeah, I, I really didn't like the character of Nemo, and I think it, it, and I think in my, I need to find someone to identify with in my searching, I think that I landed on this squirrel. Well, all right, Lindsay, this is your tape. We've, uh, unlocked the Lindsay vault, and we've dusted off this old cassette and given it a watch. Uh, what do you think? Do you buy it? Do you rent it? Do you tape over it? Can I give two ratings? for the st- As far as the story and characters go, I'm going to say tape over it. But the animation is beautiful, so I'm going to say uh, rent it, maybe? Can I do that? No. Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. You can be... You can, I, I hear you're saying you're on the fence, maybe. Because I don't want to... You know, if you tape over it, you're losing all of that hard work that those confused Japanese animators and Americans tried to put together. Well, the way I understand our rating system is that you're taping over your personal copy of it. Okay. Meaning that you wouldn't watch it again. 
All right. Well, then tape over it. Yeah. You're you're okay letting this part of your childhood seed into memory. Yeah, I think this part of my childhood has been hit by the train. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to have to agree with you. I would tape over this. Um, I think that parts of it are really charming, and I think that they went into this with the best of intentions. I think the filmmaker Fujioka, who retired after the the failure of this movie, sadly... Um, I think that everyone involved had good intentions. It's just there were too many cooks in the kitchen uh, cutting it down for American uh, audiences. That's never a good idea. It just makes it incomprehensible. Yeah, I I can't recommend it for the cool visuals alone because there's so many things competing for kids' eyeballs out there. And I think that there's you know better versions of this same idea like i i would i would recommend wizard of oz or if you really wanted to do i think i would even recommend the animated alice in wonderland the disney version over this yeah um as would i i i feel like it's a shame because there was so much really wonderful talent working on this movie but just this having spent so many years in production i mean it seems like at some point they should have just given up unless you're really really interested in animation and just the art itself uh i don't really think it's worth watching and it's a bummer too because so many interesting people were involved with this and maybe it's just that there were so many loud creative voices and uh none of them were talking to each other it seems like well, Sean, this is the end of our episode. It's time for you to announce what we're watching next time. Well, Lindsay, speaking of children's nightmares, <laughs> um, I'm selecting a horror movie for the next episode. It is 1988's Child's Play, uh, best known as the film that introduced audiences to the killer doll Chucky. So that'll be a fun one to get into. It's going to be really fun. <laughs> I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song, Mandatory Groove. You can find more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn how to spell gargantulon on our website, tapeheadspodcast.com. You can also find more info about our other podcast episodes. And we'd love your feedback on iTunes. You can rate and review us there. So, signing off for Tapeheads, I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. 